0: Turn your Bibles, please. We're going to get into this right away. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And when you find it, please say a hearty amen. amen. Like, like you really mean it. Amen. <clears throat> amen. A hearty Amen. <clears throat> the title that I have for you for this particular study, verse by verse... Study of Romans chapter three is confronting scoffers. We're going to define that in just a little bit. Confronting scoffers. A derider. A false teacher. Someone who opposes the truth of God in all respects. Confronting scoffers. You got there? Say amen. Amen. All right. Romans chapter 3. Read with me. Follow along. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Paul says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words, and prevailed when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to afflict us, to afflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Paul says, By no means. For then how could God judge the world? Here's another scoffing question. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the the venom of asps For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this portion of Scripture here in Romans chapter 3. Father, I thank you so much for the insight you've given to me. And now it's time, Father God, for, for you to share publicly. For you to anoint me. And inspire me to share publicly what you've revealed to me in secret this past week. We pray your blessings on your word. We pray your blessings on every soul here this morning. Father, give us understanding that we may not only understand what you are saying to us through this particular passage. But Father, so that we may live it out and be doers of the word and not hearers only. Father, these things we pray in Jesus' name and God's people say, Amen. Amen. Before we get into this one particular text, let's just briefly take about 30 seconds to a minute to summarize the previous chapter so that we can get at least a base understanding of what it is Paul the Apostle is conveying to us in this particular chapter. In the preceding chapter, chapter 2, the context, of course, was the law. As is the case for the most part in this one particular chapter as well. But in chapter 2, Paul the Apostle, he was essentially saying that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you consider yourself a good person or a bad person. It doesn't matter whether you consider yourself a religious person or a non-religious person. The point of chapter 2 was that all people are guilty before God. And that the purpose of the law was to expose our inherent nature to us. That was the purpose of Paul's message in Romans chapter 2. In this one particular passage, Paul is presenting and answering a series of questions posed by scoffers at the time. But these are also questions that are relevant to you and I today. Because Jesus Christ said, in, in fact, He said it over and over again in the Gospels, that in the last days there were rise up many scoffers. What is a scoffer? Well, we mentioned it a few moments back. A, a scoffer is a derider, one who mocks. But by implication, remember this, by implication it means a false teacher. Peter uses the word in his second letter, Chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, you don't have to go there, just listen to it. Second Peter chapter 3 verses 3 to 4, it says, Knowing this first, that there should come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? I, I think it's safe to say that we have scoffers among us, Nowadays, now <laughs> let me rephrase. I don't. I don't mean here in this one particular study. Michael says, "Yeah, correct that, Pastor. Correct that," because I don't appreciate that. I, I'm not saying that we have scoffers here among us, but there are scoffers in society today. Aren't, isn't that true? There are a lot of scoffers. People, people who have been hearing the message that Jesus is coming, that Jesus is coming for for generations now, for decades now. In fact, for millennia, it's been it's been preached. Ever since Jesus rose again, that one day he's coming back. One day he's coming back. And in the process of time, in every single generation, hundreds if not tens of thousands of scoffers have been raised up by the enemy himself. You people have been preaching that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Well, how long are you going to play that tune? How much longer before his actual return? And say, oh, they don't, they don't, it's not inquisitiveness on their part. They're not interested. They're just simply mocking what you and I believe. One thing that's important as we move forward concerning this context or this theme of Paul the Apostle answering the questions raised by scoffers is that they're, True intention, or rather, that the true intention of a scoffer is to place the blame of man's failures upon God. A scoffer's true intention is to place the blame of man's failures upon God. Look at verse 1 with me. Romans chapter 3. I'm really trying to control my... Coffee. The text reads, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? This is a question that was posed by a scoffer. Or rather, I should say, an imaginary opponent with whom Paul the Apostle was having a conversation or a dialogue with. And, and it's a metaphor for everyone who during that time was probably listening in to the Word of God and, and watching what God was doing in the midst and, and all this transformation that was taking place and saying, you know what, somehow, way, we have to come against the movement of God. Just like we have people in society, just like that today. So in other words, the question is, if all of us are sinful and the law doesn't save me, Then what's the point? Consider the question again. What advantage has the Jew? In chapter 2, Paul the Apostle established that the law doesn't save anybody. That it doesn't validate you before an almighty God. And so in this chapter, so, so if we're all sinners, if I as a Jew am not better than my uncircumcised Gentile friend, then what's the advantage of Judaism? Paul the Apostle answers that question. In verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says, Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What does that mean? The oracles of God. It's a reference to the Word of God. It's a reference to the truth that God has given to mankind. He's given truth to mankind Through the Jewish people. So in answer to the question, what advantage has the Jew? Well, there's a huge advantage. It's not saying, and we're going to answer this just a little bit later. It's not saying that the Jews are better than, morally better than everybody else. It's just simply saying there was an advantage to being a Jew. Because Jesus Christ, I don't think it was Jesus, I'm not sure who it was. I have it here in front of me. It was Jesus. Write this verse down. John chapter 4, verse 22. Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now turn over a few pages in your Bible to Romans chapter 9. I want you to see this for yourself really quickly. Concerning the advantage of being a Jew. Because that's what we're talking about here right now. Say amen when you got it. Romans 9. Look at verses 4 and 5. 4 and 5. It says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, number one. Number two, the glory. Number three, the covenants. Number four, the giving of the law. Number five, the worship. And number six, the promises. That's the advantage. Or it was the advantage of being a Jew. Everything that we know today concerning life, from God's perspective. Everything that we know today concerning meaning and purpose. And true, the true essence of living life, according to the will of God, has been revealed to mankind through the Jewish community. Everything. The patriarchs in the Old Testament were Jewish. The prophets were Jewish. The royal line of Judah that was kept pure so that the most famous of all Jews would one day be revealed, Jesus Christ. Jesus was Jewish. Paul the Apostle, who wrote this one particular letter, and most of the New Testament, he himself was Jewish as well. Look at verse 3. So we've established already that there was some advantage to being a Jew. But then the scoffer continues. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Another question posed by a scoffer. In other words, is it true that because not all the Jews believed that God's word failed... And that ultimately God himself failed? This perspective tries to blame God for all of man's failures. As if God's faithfulness is determined by man's activity. Adam used this excuse long ago in the beginning. He says, he says Adam, Adam says, this wouldn't have happened if it were not for the woman you gave me. Therefore, this is on you, God. How many remember that in Genesis chapter 3? He used that excuse, putting the blame on God, as if somehow God had failed when Adam and Eve sinned in the beginning. It wasn't God's fault. It has always been man's fault. The scoffer is always looking to put the blame on God. And we borrow a little bit from that in the church as well. Others use this excuse today when they walk away from Christianity, believing that Christianity doesn't work. How many of you who have been believers for a very long time have encountered a person who has walked away, perhaps a family member or a personal friend? Somebody you know who walked away from Christianity, believing that Christianity really did not work. How many know somebody like that? I got plenty of people like that, plenty of friends like that. In fact, my very first, I wasn't saved at the time, but my very first pastor, I guess we could put it that way, because as a very young, young, youngster, I was actually going to all the um, children's activities that the church sponsored, is the First Spanish Baptist Church of Philadelphia. English studies with the kids, and it was a wonderful time. A whole lot of fun and games. And that pastor was there for a very long time. He got sick one day and he felt abandoned by god and so the enemy slipped in his influence his mechanism if you will and that pastor long story short is in puerto rico today and he is a faithful jehovah's witness because during during as he perceived it as a time at the time during his most painful most trying some moments in his life, according to him, nobody visited him. And that the only people who visited him were the Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on the door. He opened the door one day, he got away from Christianity believing it not to be the right path. Go figure. Go figure. Go figure. And there are tens of thousands of stories just like that in the body of believers, in the community of faith. People walking away from Christianity, believing it not to be sufficient. Because somehow, some way, God has failed them. Remember, the scoffer always puts the blame on God. This is not happening because it's not God's will. You know what? He's failing. I, and, and how many of you, how many of you, now be honest, be honest. This is in my notes. Be honest with yourself. I'm not going to ask you. To answer, but how many of you, perhaps sometime in the past, lied just to get by with, say, an agenda that you had during a particular time in your life? Believing that God somehow wasn't coming through for you fast enough, fast enough. And so you had to get out ahead of God. Somehow God wasn't mindful of what you were going through at the time. And so you had to sin in some particular way just to make the process go smoothly. Or expedite the process. Scoffing. Those philosophies. If we're not careful, we absorb some of those things. We adopt some of those things. And we end up living them out. <clears throat> Look at... Um, Let me read this first before I move on to verse 4. The reality is, mankind has always been at fault for his own failures, and God has always sought to redeem us in spite of ourselves. Furthermore, growth is always guaranteed when we consecrate ourselves to the Word of God. And the reason why I wrote that down is because sometimes... Even though we are believers, and many of us have been believers for a very long time, we have grown a little bit, perhaps, not everybody, and perhaps not in some overwhelming way, but sometimes, and I'll I'll be the first one to be honest, from time to time I have wrestled with a little indifference to the Word of God. I have wrestled with a little indifference, not necessarily disbelieving in the Word of God, But probably finding myself in a very difficult situation, especially when I was away in, you know, in college. Right? (laughs) Why are you laughing? When I was away in college, I wrestled a little bit. Because I I, I didn't think God was defending His word fast enough. Fast enough for, for me. And so I wrestled with a little indifference. And I was wondering whether God was faithful to His word or not. And during that season of my life, when I allowed that sort of thinking, when I entertained that sort of thinking, I struggled the most. I struggled the most. How many know that God does not fail His Word? How many know that His Word is always true? I believe it's Matthew twenty four thirty five. It says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but thy word, O Lord, will never pass away. And then there's another verse, there's another verse that says, that says, Um, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And can you imagine the unfaithfulness of some nullifying God's promises? To Abraham and David, because this is what... We're going to get back to the text now. Because this is what the scoffer was raising up. This is what Paul, the challenge that Paul the Apostle was taking on. Can you imagine? The scoffer says, well, listen, isn't it possible that because some have failed the legal system in the Old Testament, that ultimately the Word of God failed, and ultimately God Himself failed for not defending His Word? As if the unfaithful... Determined the hand of God. How many know that the promises that God spoke to Abraham were eternal promises? How about promises that he made to King David concerning the everlasting covenant? Ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. Can you imagine just because many Jews in the Old Testament failed to live out the standard of the word of God? God taking back His promises from Abraham and David. You know what? Since you people are not, not, not faithful enough to me, I'm going to nullify all of my promises. My words I, which I've given unto you, over and done with. Where would you and I be today if that were the case? Where would we be today? God has given you promises. Let me see your hand if God has given you a promise. At some point in your life, He's given you a promise. Can you imagine if God's faithfulness were determined by your faithfulness? So that's what Paul the Apostle is challenging here. That's what he's saying. No, God's faithfulness is never determined by the, the faithfulness of an, an inherently sinful species. <laughs> Look at verse 4. He says, by no means. He said, let God be true, though everyone we're a liar. As it is written. That you may be justified in your words. And prevail when you are judged. Can you imagine? What did Paul just say there? He says it doesn't matter if no one in the world believed in God. God's still faithful in the end. Because God's faithfulness is never determined By whether you and I can be faithful or not. Because we're going to make choices every single day. And we're not always going to make the right choice. It doesn't mean that God's word has failed. Or that God has failed. This tells us that even if no one in the world believed in God. He still remains faithful and holy and perfect. He's not the one with the sinful problem. We are. He's the standard. This is what Paul was saying. And the judge. And one day he will be completely justified in judging all of mankind when we stand before him. But not just ultimately then. All of mankind will ultimately be judged by God. Some will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Some will stand before the great white throne judgment. That's a future experience. But we are in fact being judged today as well. How many know that there's always an effect upon our lives with every decision we make. There's always an effect in our lives. So, if you and I, if every single one of us chose to walk away from the sanctuary and just turned our backs on God, does it mean that God's word has failed or somehow He's unfaithful? Paul says, no, by no means. Look at verse 5. He says, but if... Here's another scoffing question. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God... What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. He is talking about something that is often overlooked when we talk about morality, righteousness, or goodness. This idea is based based on the idea that when God judges, He is actually showing His righteousness. And so the scoffer twists that. He's turning that around and somehow putting the blame on God when he judges us righteously. Consider this as an illustration. Like the criminal receiving a lengthy sentence, I I can relate, for his crime after having been condemned by a judge, the decision by the judge is considered to be a righteous one. Isn't it not? He's just simply applying himself to the standard of the law. If you and I stand before a judge because you committed some particular crime and you were found guilty and the judge sentences you, isn't he not being righteous by doing so? Absolutely. So the scoffer is saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. So if the judge is ultimately righteous by handing down his sentence, then then I must have done a really good thing to put him in that position. So why is God condemning me then? I know, it sounds crazy, but that's the notion that's being challenged here. Because sometimes we live with that notion. Sometimes we justify ourselves in our sin. When was the last time you did something inappropriate, something good came about, and somehow, well, wait a minute. So I must be working for God then. I find myself in a position like that once before. Can evil ever be justified? By no means. By no means. How many of you, well... Let me not ask you, I'll make it personal. I got a friend, true story, who, like myself, kind of shady past, right? And he hid his criminal record from a prospective employer. He needed the job. His family was hungry, he was about to be evicted. He needed the job, like last year. He went before, he went to to the interview, he hid his past, they gave him the job. He was able to put some food on the table, take care of a couple of bills, etc. And then guess what happens later? They found out. What do you think happened? He was fired. He was fired because he lied. You know what the employer said? True story. If you had just come forward with some honesty, I would have given you the job. No matter what. Especially since, according to what I'm looking at, your past history is not necessarily going to affect me here today with your responsibilities on the job. I'm talking about a truck driving job. Good paying truck driving job. He was terminated because he chose not to lie. And yet when he did lie, there was some immediate benefit. He got the job. He was earning a paycheck for about a month. Until the final results of the background check came through and he was terminated. We can never justify evil. But this is a complaint because we got to get back to the text, right? This was a complaint on the part of the scoffer in this text. Quote, if my sin gives God a chance to show his righteousness, then maybe my sin is God's fault. And I'm actually doing the Lord's work. And if that's the case, why is he judging me then? Imagine that. Have you ever found yourself in one of those situations? The conclusion to that particular point is that God is the standard and he is righteous when he judges. And it isn't, it's never a good thing to be judged by him. We should always feel Ashamed when we sin against God. Always. No exception. Sin is sin. And it has to be acknowledged as such. Simply put. No, let's go to look. Look at verse 6 with me. This is Paul's response. He says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? Remember the example That we spoke about a few moments ago. If I'm justified at some point in my sin, then God really doesn't have the right to judge me today or ultimately tomorrow. If God is ultimately at fault for the way that I am today, then he doesn't have the right to judge me. This is what Paul the Apostle is saying. So he's destroying the argument by the scoffer that somehow God is at fault for sin in our lives. Simply put, because God is not the one responsible for our sin, he, he therefore has the right to condemn mankind because the fault lies with us and not with him. Look at verse 7. The scoffer is still twisting his narrative. He says, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? This is almost a reiteration of the question in verse 5, but with one addition. The idea is of good intentions. That's what the scoffer is getting at here now. Well, what, what about if I have good intentions? Like the like the example or the illustration I posed a few moments back. My buddy, what my buddy did when he lied to the employer. There was some immediate benefit, but ultimately he was fired because he lied. If good things are coming to pass as a result of my sin, am I not approved by God? And if so, then I must be working for him. In which case, why is he condemning me? That's to paraphrase the question by the scoffer. The response is, there's always a consequence to our sin. Look at verse 8. It says, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now there are a couple things, three things that stand out here to me. Number one, the notion that evil is justified as long as our intentions are good. Number two, that Paul says that people were attributing that idea to him. And number three, the ideas that those scoffers were extremely deserving of God's condemnation, which is self-explanatory. Anybody who opposes the word of God, anybody who raises up an argument against God's word, against God's truth, against God's church, against God's community of believers, is ultimately going to be condemned by God. And justly So, so that one is self-explanatory. But let's speak to the first one I presented. Is evil ever justified? Absolutely not. That's what Paul the Apostle says. He says, by no means. Number two. He says, Paul the Apostle presented the idea that there were many people attributing the idea... That man could be justified with, as long as they have good intentions, that they were attributing that idea to him. And Paul the Apostle says, absolutely not. That is not the case. It's never true that evil is sometimes justified. And lastly, which is what I just finished talking about. that punishment is justified. As Christians, we receive correction from the Lord when we misbehave every single time. For my friend in the illustration, he wasn't corrected right away, but ultimately he was because he lost his job. Look at verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul the Apostle says, no, not at all. For we have already charged at all, both Jews and Greeks, Are under sin. It seems like a contradiction between this verse, look at your text, and verses 1 and 2. The question here is, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul says no. But in verses 1 and 2, he says there is some advantage. Is there a contradiction? No, not at all. In verses 1 and 2, we learn that there there were benefits to being Jewish. So... Some would say that it contradicts this verse. That's not the case. Paul says, absolutely not. Verses 1 and 2, again, speak of the Jews having had an advantage over everyone else because they were chosen by God. While verse 9 speaks of being morally better than. And that's just not the case. No one is morally better than anybody else. Because the point of the text is that we are all inherently Sinful. So the answer is an emphatic no. We are all sinners. Consider what Paul does next. To close this conversation. Sort of like with a, with a, with a hammer. With a hammer's blow. This conversation that he's having with a, a mysterious scoffer. Concerning the idea of putting the blame on God. Verses 10 through 18. Let's, let's read them together. Follow along. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. What an indictment. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of Asp. Is under their lips. Verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What's happening there? I don't know if you noticed, but Paul the Apostle uses a lot of quotes from the Old Testament. Mostly from the book of Psalms, there are some from, at least one from Isaiah, and at least one or two from the book of Proverbs. The main point, however, is to highlight man's inherent sinful nature apart from God. In other words, this is exactly what you and I look like to God apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from the the grace of God upon our lives. We are inherently sinful. Sinful. And these are the specifics. Verse 19. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What's happening there? So I'm going to include some commentary here between 10 and 18, as well as verse 19. Because... I think it's necessary to do so. So on the one hand, verses 10 through 18, there's an indictment upon all of mankind. All are sinners before God. However, the Jewish individual thought himself to be slightly better than morally than everybody else. Because why? Because they were keeping the law. They were observing the law. So therefore, we must be better than everybody else. I am definitely better than this uncircumcised Gentile. That was kind of the declaration the Jewish people were making back then. And Paul the Apostle says, you need to understand that you are not different in any way than everyone else. And because of this declaration, that is verses 10 through 18, that everybody is guilty before God, you need to stop your boasting. That's what he's saying to the Jewish people, the Jewish community. The scoffers. So oh, I'm a Jew, so I'm better than everybody else. No, 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 no. You need to stop with your boasting because you are just like me. It's what Paul is saying. The context is clearly Jewish. Consider a Jewish person reading the law and using it to condemn those of us in the world who are not keeping it. They may feel as if they are better than everyone else. And so the impression is that they were boasting in that. In other words, they were running their mouths. Well, check me out. I'm better than or we are better than. And they did that in many ways. And Paul the Apostle said, you know what? Your boasting's in vain. Because you are just like the rest of us. And the point here is that the law has rendered them just as guilty as everyone else. And therefore there is no more boasting for the Jew. Why not? Look at verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The point is that the law doesn't justify anyone. It only convicts us of sin. It only serves to expose the sin within us. That's all the law law does. How many of you have ever heard the the white glove test? The white glove test. Okay, a couple of you have heard it. I'm gonna use it here. Of course I don't have a white glove. I'm gonna share some information concerning the white glove. Because I, I was in the presence of somebody who, who was actually conducting such a test. And I see this person putting on a white glove. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Immediately I reach from my backside. No.
1: Yeah. She
0: just she just got it. When, Now, that that would be a latex rubber glove, right? The the white glove test is totally different. Let's say, Sarah, don't be embarrassed for me. Don't be embarrassed. Sarah, you pray, please pray for me. It's a prison thing. Consider, Consider all the women having been in here for a long time. Say, a couple of days. The women in the church. The women in this church like to clean, right? And consider the women having gone through here, with all the instruments, with all the cleaning solutions, the sponges, the rags, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. And went through this whole place, and we, you and I come in here, and it, it, it looks spotless, and it smells good in here. But then somebody comes in with a white glove, right? The idea of the white glove is to, to reach under some, some areas, reach behind, reach inside some, some areas... To find out if everything has truly been cleaned or not. So when you use a white glove and you wipe across a surface that's still dirty or still has some residue of dirt, that white glove is going to expose it. Isn't that the case? Because the white glove is going to get dirty on that one particular finger. The same thing applies to you and I. That's what the law does to mankind. It's like the white glove test. It has rendered every single one of us guilty, no matter what it is you try to do. To look good, feel good, smell good, feel good, whatever the case might be. Your religious practice is null and void. You can never be good enough to please God. You can never be religious enough to please God. No good person has ever entered heaven's gates. None whatsoever. And it's never going to happen. Not in and of yourself based on your own merit. Because it's never sufficient enough. Because the white glove has exposed dirt in certain areas of your life. It has exposed sin in our lives. That's what the legal system was doing. That's what the legal system does, rather. And Paul the Apostle, let's just summarize this because I am done. Paul the Apostle is answering these these questions that were probably posed by scoffers at the time, who felt justified before God in certain cases. For example, well, if I have good intentions and the result is a positive one, why am I being condemned by God? <clears throat> it's because the law has rendered that person, just like everybody else, To be a sinner. The point is that the law exposes sin. And if you attempt to live your life accordingly. If you attempt to pattern your life according to the law. It's only going to result in one thing. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. I want you to see something. Some of us. I'm guilty of it myself. Have misinterpreted this one particular passage. Galatians 6. 7 and 8. You have it? Say Amen. Amen. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one's soul's that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. When I first read that, and for a very long time after that, I just simply attributed that to the law of sowing and reaping. And that was it. When the reality is that Paul the Apostle in the book of Galatians is contrasting the law and its effects on our lives and grace and its impact upon our lives. And that if you choose to live according to the law, you're going to be condemned. But if you accept Jesus Christ and choose to live according to the grace of God, by faith you will inherit eternal life. That's what Paul the Apostle was saying there, which is the context of Romans chapter 3. The law is not going to save you, so stop living according to it. It was only intended to expose the sin in our lives. Amen? Can we, do we have a song we're going to sing? Is it, is it just you? Why don't you stand with me as we sing this last song?
1: I'm grateful that the law points out our sin but does not condemn, right? And there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ. We have victory instead. You
0: Father, thank you so much for blessing us with this wonderful day. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your presence this morning. Thank you for the comforts that you give us. Thank you for the assurance, as Janine stated, the, the assurance that you give us because we know you personally and intimately. As such, we are saved. And therefore, there is no condemnation resting upon our lives. There is no wrath from you upon us. We thank you so much for exposing our imperfections. And then challenging us to embrace your word, to embrace you in a personal and intimate relationship. For the purpose of developing or growing in our faith. And developing according to your will for our lives. Father, we need you today. We've made mistakes. We're making some now. We will certainly make some tomorrow. Give us your grace. Shower us with your love, Lord God. Extend yourself, yourself to us, Lord God, in a greater way. We need you, Lord God. Expose our frailties, our inconsistencies. Help us to acknowledge these things to you. Because you tell us clearly in your word that if we do not confess or acknowledge or forsake our sins. As you stated through Solomon in Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen, that if we don't confess our sins and forsake them, if we cover our sins, we will not grow or prosper accordingly. Help us to yield our lives to you, Lord God, and to recognize who we are apart from you. Not that that is the case with us. Currently, because we know that we are in Christ, but help us to to truly recognize what mankind is like apart from you. The way you shared to us in verses 10 through 18, there's none righteous. No, not one. We are not morally better than the next person or the next community or state or country. We are all sinners in your sight. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you you so much for the shed blood. Thank you so much for your redeeming plan. Thank you so much that it's still unfolding in our lives. And the best is yet to come concerning us. We praise you. We magnify your holy name. May you bless us as we go our separate ways. These things we pray in Jesus' name and God's people say.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.